You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley titled, You've Got Mail, which is from our sermon series, You've Got Mail. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Thank you. I'm going to give you a really easy task this morning. Would you turn to the book of Revelation? And everybody goes, where, what? (laughs) It's the last book in the Bible. It's uh, actually somebody one time, they come to me and said, I don't know, what's this book concordance? It's really different than the rest. So it's right before, in most of your Bibles, concordance. Uh, One of the things that we say around here is all about Jesus. He's the Lord of all. He's the Savior of all. He's the name that's above every other name. Uh, He's the one that we come to worship. Uh, to, To give worship simply means to give worth to, to place value upon. And, And that's really why we gather on a morning like this. We've just experienced singing, while that's an aspect of worship, ultimately it's about our whole life that gives worship to Jesus. Now some of you are probably asking, why are we going to spend the next few months in the book of Revelation? Here's, I've got a few reasons. Uh, Number one, I've never spent any extended time in it. Uh, It's just one of those books that you go, wow, there's a lot to it. But we're going to spend some time in it. That's one of the reasons. Uh, Another reason, uh, we're going to go through at least the first chapters. It focuses on the church of that time. What did Jesus speak to the churches of that day? Because it's very relevant for today. And it was a number of months ago where, as I was just reading my Bible reading plan, I was going through the book of Revelation, and I come to one of the churches, and it spoke a very strong word to me for Creekside. So the natural uh, assumption on my part was, well, there's probably some other good stuff here that, might, that Creekside might need to hear. So that's another reason. I want us to read, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at the first eight verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must quickly take place. Now, don't be confused about what must quickly take place, because a lot of people think that... Uh, that that's supposed to, that, oh man, we're so far away from that, maybe we've missed it. Now that idea here that he's talking about is that when things begin to take place as to what we're talking about in the later parts of the book of Revelation, what he's really saying is it's going to happen with greater rapidity. it's, It's not that those things are supposed to happen right now as much as when they begin to happen, there's going to be a quickness to them that's going to take place. So he sent it to, and he signified that through his angel to his servant John, who has testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. Notice this great verse right here. If you're an underliner, a highlighter, 
note this one. Blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. Notice that it is a prophecy. We'll talk about that in a minute. And keep what is written in it because the time is near. Keep, obey, because the time is coming near. Now he gives, John kind of gives a salutation. He says, now to the servant, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and is coming. Kind of underscoring this piece of coming. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's just kind of bringing everybody into it. To him who loves us, I love that. He loves us and because he loves us, he has set us free from our sins. How? By his blood. And he made us a kingdom of priests. Throughout the scriptures of the New Testament, in the Old Testament, they had priests that represented people before God. The New Testament, where it talks about in Ephesians 2, and when Jesus was on the cross and the temple veil was rent, now we have access and we become really kind of our own priests. You don't need a priest. You have you and Jesus who made access to the things of spiritual life with the Father. Priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. It's the second mention of his coming. And every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. All the families of the earth, they will mourn over him. Most scholars believe that that mourning isn't because they're so excited or whatever to see Jesus. It's more about a grief and an understanding that they did not make a decision to choose him. They will mourn over him. Notice these words, three words. This is certain. Amen. I am the beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is simply the beginning. Omega is the end. Everything originates and has started with Jesus. And as we see in this book, everything will end with Jesus. This is what the Lord God says. The one who is, the one who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. And next week we're going to continue and we're going to get this incredible vision of who Jesus is. But I, I wanted to come to this because, first of all, it was the Lord spoke to me through one of the churches a number of months ago. So we are going to definitely get through those first three chapters in the next few months. But I also love this part that there's this resident blessing that is unique and it's stated in this book that isn't stated in any other part of the Bible. He says, when you stand up and speak it, there's a blessing to you. When you hear it, there's a blessing to you. And it's accompanied by those who not only speak it and hear it, but they engage it and they obey it. 
What I love about that, it doesn't, this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you got to know all the stuff. It doesn't mean you got to know all the timelines. It doesn't mean you got to figure out all the symbolism. It doesn't mean that you have to have an ironclad understanding of this book. It just simply says, read it, hear it, and engage it for your life. And what's it going to bring? It's going to bring a blessing. What do you mean blessing? Well, it's the same word that is used when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And he talked about the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The idea of blessing is just simply, it's it's a quality of life. Blessed are those who hunger. There's this blessing, something good and something right. Something of life-giving joy is going to come to your life simply by reading and hearing and living out the truth of this book. I I don't know about you, but are you kind of intimidated by this book? I, I think a lot of us are. And I think the enemy of our soul has really tricked us to stay away from it. Stay clear of this book. Why would he do that? I think, first of all, because he doesn't want us to experience the blessing of Christ. Because if you talk to most people, what will they say about this book? Oh, man, it's about the end times. It's about all this negative, bad stuff that God's going to come and and do all of this. And it kind of gives God a bad name, but that's not really what it's about. So many people, they stay away from it because they're fearful of it. I mean, it's just a scary book. I remember when I first come to Christ, I was in high school. And a lot of the reason that I came to Christ was because of some of the things that were being interpreted from this book. And so I stayed away from it. I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to have dreams at night about seven beasts and, you know, these ones that had 12 eyeballs and and all of these things that just come out. I mean, I, you know, I saw the exorcist when I was 15 and that was enough. (laughs) Some people don't think it's really relevant for today. It should just simply be you know, part of the Twilight Zone series. And think about the brilliant strategy that Satan would use to keep us from this incredible book. Because ultimately, it gives us the clearest picture. It gives us the greatest picture of Satan's demise and falling under the dominion of Jesus Christ. It's so clear that that that's why God wants us in this book and we'll be blessed by it and Satan wants to keep us from it. Because in it, we see our ultimate victory and our ultimate hope for our future and eternity. And honestly, it's less complex than what we understand it to be. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism in it. But look at verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. This is the only book of the Bible that gives its own outline. That says, this is what this book is about. This is how you can follow what's taking place. Verse 19 says this, Well, therefore, write therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. So he's saying, I want you to write, John, I want you to take, and I want you to write what was seen. Well, what was seen? Chapter one, he has seen Jesus, the Lord's person. Jesus is the star of this unfolding drama, and the reality of the resurrected Christ is going to be seen in these pages. We're going to look next week at the only description that we have of Jesus in the Bible, and John gives it to us. 
And then he says, the next section is chapters two and three. It addresses the things that are. When this book was written, probably 95 or 96 AD, John, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, is writing to the seven churches, and we'll talk about those in a couple of weeks. But Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. These were important messages for the churches at that time, and trust me, loved ones, they have incredible depth of message for us and our church and every church today. So he says the first section, I want you to write what was seen. Chapter one, you're going to see Jesus like you've never seen him. Chapters two and three, I'm speaking to the churches. Declare these to the seven churches. And then the third section is chapters four through 22 that deals with the things to come. This is what Jesus is going to bring forth, oversee as the consummation of history as we know it. Now, some of you are probably hoping, oh, man, I hope we find out who this is or who that is or what this means or what that means. And if we get into it, we might. I mean, we probably won't find out those specific things. But I hope by the time we're done that you'll have a better understanding and greater picture because this is the primary reason I want to go through it. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, it's really important, loved ones, that you see that Jesus gets top billing. He's the star of this book. It's not the Antichrist. It's not the beast. It's not the devil. It's not the harlot. It's not Babylon. It's not kingdoms. It's not the dragon. It's not the two witnesses that everybody tries to figure out, and there's nothing wrong with that. But this book is about the unveiling of the person and the purposes and the plans and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can never forget that. This is a revelation from Jesus given to John because it's a revelation of Jesus. And I want you, you're going to see him on just about every page. And as we look next week, we'll see this kind of current glimpse of him. He's the hope of the church and the hope of our future because of who Jesus is. What he has done in the past, what he's doing in the present and what he's going to do in the future. You understand, I think, I hope, everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And the summation of the book of Revelation is about Jesus. Here's my prayer for us, is that there would be this greater and deeper revelation of who Jesus is. For, For you as an individual and for us as a church... How many of you are familiar with the, with the word apocalypse or apocalyptic? You, you, you hear that word. What do you think about? End times. What else? Destruction, devastation, right? Everything is climaxed and it's coming to an end. I, I think that we have a bit of a distorted understanding of that because of a lot of times what we see in the movies, Because the word uh, uh, apocalypse, it comes from a word in Revelation in a Greek word, apocalypse, and it's really the meaning of it is an unveiling. It's a revealing. It's you now see something that has not been seen or you know something that has not been known. 
And so the whole understanding here is there's going to be this unveiling and this revealing of Jesus and his person and his works and his purposes for the end time. I suppose the best way to understand it is, I don't know, I've watched uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz over Christmas. Remember the, the guy, the, the wizard? He's in, his, he's in this thing and he's doing all these smoke and mirrors things and you see these faces come up and smoke and fire and all of a sudden, what does the little dog do? These people, uh, the tin man and the lion and, uh, and, and they're all, they're just standing there and their knees are knocking and they're scared spitless and they're watching. And all of a sudden the dog scurries over there and what's he do? He pulls the curtain back and what do you see? You see this dweeby old guy who's in there just pushing levers, pulling buttons and doing all these different things and talking through a microphone. He's been unveiled for who he was. He's revealed for what he is doing. That's the idea that we're going to see with Jesus here. There's an unveiling, there's a revealing. But not as some weak person, but as the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, Maybe some of you remember uh, the veil of Jesus' flesh was pulled back and his glory, his divine heavenly glory was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. It was there where Christ's divine glory had been concealed beneath the flesh and he's standing on the mountaintop. He's with Peter, James, and John and for whatever reason it says that there was this transformation of the life of Jesus. His his physical being was transformed and what happened, it says that the disciples fell before his feet. They couldn't even stand in the midst of his glory. And we're gonna see the same thing happens next week to John. So as as we move through this, I don't want you to think in terms of apocalypse and apocalyptic is synonymous with disaster uh, or that it's seen through the lenses of lifetime, end times destruction. The problem with that is, is it can lead to a thing called a Maranatha complex. The Maranatha is the Greek word that says that means the Lord is coming or Lord come quickly. Have you ever noticed how there's, there's seasons of life, it cycles through where people kind of get this, quote, apocalyptic fever, end times fever. Have you, have you ever noticed that? You've been around that at all? I've only been a Christian since, well, it's a pretty long time now, uh, since uh, 1976. And here's what brought me to Christ. There was a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have heard of it or read that book? Yeah, it will scare Hades out of you. And which is what happened to me as a 17-year-old because everyone believed that based on Hal Lindsey's interpretation of Revelation, and he wrote this great book, that he believed that we were in the generation, not that we're not, or it's still part of this generation, but he had it calculated that before 2000 and something, Jesus would return. Well, he didn't. But a lot of people came to Christ during that time. And this takes place about every 20 years. That was in 19, probably in the mid-70s. Then in 1988, a guy wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Return in 1988. Sold millions of copies. You, You see where I'm going here. And there begins to be this kind of groundswell with Christians. Oh, it's time. Jesus is coming. 
There's a lot of people that can't retire in their life because they believe Jesus was coming. And they didn't save. Oh, we know the date. He's going to come before this time. I, I know, but that's, but you know, people of great faith, you know, that's kind of what they believe. And then there was another gentleman about uh, 10 years ago. His name was Harold Camping, a radio evangelist. He came to have, he claimed to have cracked the code in the Bible that allowed him to calculate the day of the rapture, which would precede the coming of Jesus Christ. So I believe it was May 11th, 2011, that he chose. He took up full-page ads in major newspapers, the USA Today. I have one. I couldn't find it, but I have it in some file somewhere. Because I was up in Washington, away from Trina, and as soon as it became 12 o'clock that night, I called her because I figured if anybody would go, it would be her. <laughs> and, and if I was still here, I kind of wanted to figure out if I missed the boat. <laughs> well, needless to say, we're all here. Well, so, he does, so what he does is he takes out another ad and he apologizes. He said, I think I missed it by five months. It's going to happen in October of 2011. Well, we're still here. And Camping retired shortly thereafter from the ministry, and uh, he is dead today. See, the problem is, is we try and set these dates, and Jesus even said, he said, you know what? No man's going to know. Nobody's going to know. And I'm convinced of this, that if somebody did happen to get it right, God would change the date. Why? I mean, could you imagine living in heaven with the person that's, you know, it's kind of like they hit the lotto. I got the date right. Uh, but, but, Jesus, but Jesus said, I, I don't even know the date. That's for the Father to know. But as you read through the book of Revelation, you're going to see that there's, it's a genre of apocalyptic literature that was used in John's day, and not so much today. But, but it's heavy on symbols and symbolism and that many of the Jewish community would have been familiar with. And li- it was li- likely written so that it could kind of camouflage some of the meanings of what Revelation was about. Because, see, this book at this time would have been very subversive to the Roman Empire because it talked of a coming kingdom. It talked about the destruction of the kingdoms that were in place at that time. And with Rome as the ruling power there in the first century, first century Christians were living under some fairly uh, heavy oppression and persecution from the Roman government. See, they wouldn't pay allegiance to Caesar. They would only pay allegiance to God. So there was a lot of persecution that was taking place at that time of those who followed Jesus. Now, verse 3 reminds us that this is a book of prophecy. While it is a book of blessing, it's ultimately a book of prophecy. There's two things. uh, There's two types of prophecy. One, uh, the the meaning of the word is to foretell. It just means to tell forth something. That's what we're doing today. I'm telling forth some of the truth of God's word. The other word that has to do with prophecy is foretelling, where really you are foretelling the future, what is going to take a place before they occur. And we see both of these types of prophecy in this book. 
You'll see that in Revelation 1 through 3, it really are four, are four t- fourth telling chapters because they applied to the people then, they apply to us today, specifically at that time. But when we get to chapter 4 through 22, you're going to see that it's foretelling because these are the chapters where the revelation of Jesus to John the Revelator are now pointing forward. These things have not happened yet, and he's foretelling, and that's what all of these symbols and symbolism are about. So throughout Scripture, we're exhorted to hear and to trust God as the prophecy comes forth, whether it's on a Sunday morning like this or the foretelling of what's going to take place. And he says, what I want you to do, I want you to hear. I want you to read it. And I want you to trust Jesus with the future because he is sovereign. He is Lord of all. I want you to take his word as your authority and I want it to be the thing that you put your trust in. The scripture talks throughout that we put our full weight in Jesus. That's literally what it means to trust and to believe in him, that we lean into him with the full weight of our being. And and he's saying here, that's what I want you to do with this book. That way you can live with an incredible depth of security. I mean, just think of all of the stuff that is happening in the present. Just look at the news. Look at the nations we're dealing with. Look at the things that are taking place. If that doesn't make you just a little bit uneasy, you're probably not watching the news or reading the newspaper. If you're reading this book... He says, I'm going to give you a blessing. And as you read this book, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not only going to give you a blessing. I'm not only going to give you a a life expression of joy that you can live out, but I'm going to give you a hope for the future because what you're going to see is Jesus is going to be unveiled as the one in charge who knows all that is taking place because he is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end. Uh, kind of as a sidebar, loved ones, uh, that's one of the reasons why the scripture speaks against the use of astrology and diviners and palm readers. Because most people that do that, what are they thinking about? Well, it's just kind of a fun little thing to do. You'd be surprised at how many people build their life around those things. Why do we look at astrology? Well, I want to see what my week's going to be like. Well, I, I, I don't need to know what my, wife's, what my week's going to be like because, first of all, i got to plan it, and then secondly, i got to trust Jesus to get through it and to do what he wants me to do. I don't need to go have my palm read to see who I'm going to marry, when I'm going to marry, how long I'm going to live, and all of those things. Amen. I don't have to go on TV and talk to the, uh, what do they call it, the Manhattan Madam? <laughs> is, that who, is that what she does, or is she something else? But uh, I, I got to be careful. Or John, the guy that goes to the other side. <laughs> TV will get you in trouble every time. But see, that's what Jesus comes to do. He says, I want you to put your full weight in me. I want you to trust in me. Because people that do that, number one, they want to know the future. Why? So they can probably control their present instead of trusting Jesus with it. 
And that's why we're called to put our weight and our life in this person that has already come and is coming again. It's funny, erroneously, I've heard people kid, and probably some were serious. You know, I'd really like to really know how the book of Revelation, the time frames, because then I could kind of do what I want to do and then make a decision at the right time, <laughs> which is pretty stupid. Because we all have a shelf life. We all have an expiration date. Truth is, we're all going to die or we're going to be taken away with Jesus. And you can't control that. So why was this so important to be written at this time? Well, because this book has a past, a present, and a future tense to it. But these Christians were going through, they were experiencing persecution in real time. And they were probably thinking like some of us think at times when there's things exploding and imploding in our lives. Really, Jesus? Where are you? What are you up to? Are, are you really there? Are you really engaged in my life? And so Jesus appears to John and he gives them this revelation. Well, who's John? Well, we know that at this time, Domitian, the emperor, of Rome at this time was in his last days. This book was written about 95, 96, and Domitian's uh, rule ended in about 96 AD. So there's a lot of uh, persecution of Christians that's taking place. What does he do? He's probably the one that banished the apostle John, who was the last living apostle, the only apostle that wasn't martyred. And he's banished to this rocky, barren, God-forsaken island of Patmos. You'll see on the front of your bulletin where it's, it's basically southwest of, of uh, Asia Minor, number of miles off the coast there. This would have been a Roman penal camp where people would have been sent. And it's here on this island of Patmos where John was given this incredible, powerful revelation of Jesus Christ. John is the one who previously wrote the Gospel of John. John is the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Somebody said, if you want theology, read Paul. If you want ethics, read James. But for the heart of Christianity, love, read John's writings. Some of the greatest statements about God's loving nature were penned by John. But it's interesting, if you know anything about John... When he was younger and first started following Jesus, he was probably the youngest of the apostles, they believe. When he was following Jesus, he probably, when he first started following Jesus, they were walking through some towns, and then his brother James, nobody responded to the message. And so as they're kind of walking through town, James and John says, Lord, how about if we just call fire down? What if we just incinerate these people that aren't responding? And Jesus turns and basically looks at him and says, that's not how we roll. Well, we're just going to keep going. Our job is to preach the message, and if people respond, they do. But what you see is this aggressive, potentially angry prophet for God who over time gets marinated in the love of God. And he begins to become and be known as the apostle of love. 
And, and just like he confronted John in that day, and we see this transformation, I think Jesus wants to do the same with us as a church. He, he wants to make sure that we're loving. He wants to make sure that we see people as he does. And that's one of the greatest revelations of Jesus that you'll ever have because love is one of the most powerful motivations in the world. And yet what you're going to see through this revelation of Jesus, it isn't all about love. There's some other strong words that he's going to speak to us about a number of areas in our lives. But I love this because Jesus calls on John to write down these words. He was probably Jesus' BFF. Probably Jesus' best friend, maybe like a big brother to him, uh, the different ages that he could have been anywhere from probably 18 to early 20s while Jesus was in his 30s. But John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved in one of the Gospels. John was with him during his ministry the whole time. He didn't leave him. John was the one who rested his head on Jesus' uh, breast at the Last Supper. Jesus is on the cross. He's being crucified. And who's at the foot of the cross? The apostle John. What does Jesus say to him? John, behold my mama. I want you to take care of her. You got to have a lot of trust. You got to have a lot of relational collateral with someone to turn your grieving mother over to them. But, but now see this, he's exiled on the island of Patmos. Why is he there? Because of his best friend, the one he stood with, the one he cared for, the one he loved, he walked with, he heard from, took care of his mother, the savior of the world. And he's on this rock in the middle of the open sea, Think Alcatraz, except further from shore. The winds are fierce. The storms can come up suddenly. It's cold. There's rugged terrain. There's rough seas. There's very little vegetation. There's not much of life and growth that are taking place there. And there he is. I, I wonder if Domitian, Domitian didn't exile him there because he said, hey, this is a way that I can end this powerful man's ministry of preaching and teaching. Delivering people, praying for people, teaching people, loving people, influencing people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's there. I'll put an end to his ministry. He's just an old man now. John is probably, scholars believe, in his 90s. So we're going to exile him. <laughs> but he's not done. Consider you being there. You've been serving your best friend, Jesus. And all of a sudden, he leads you into exile. You're alone. You're elderly and you're lonely. You can't be with your church peeps on Sunday. Oh, you can see the landmass where a lot of them meet, but you can't see them. You can't be with them. But then out of nowhere, Jesus shows up 
and he reveals himself in all of his heavenly glory and he begins to speak to you. At the darkest moment, one of the most difficult times, he shows up. That's John's story. That's the backdrop of the revelation that the church receives. Let me just quickly give you three things to remember as we move into this. Number one, remember Jesus is coming again. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Revelation tells us, that there's going to come a time when the whole world sees for the last time the risen Lord. He's coming again. But here's the deal. When he comes the next time, he's not destined for a cross. He's destined for a crown. He's not coming as a precious baby, but a powerful king. He's not coming in humility and poverty, but, as a spl- but in his great splendor and divine power. He's not coming as a suffering lamb, but he's coming as a conquering lion and sovereign Lord who is over all, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will come and he's going to be revealed to the whole world. people will now see him as he truly is. That's the clear teaching of scriptures. That's the two two different times that John, through this revelation, writes that in the opening eight verses. Remember, he's coming, loved ones. Secondly, never forget, he's the answer. As the chapters of this book are now going to unfold, we're going to see that Jesus is the solution to the problems of the world. We're going to see that he is the only hope for fallen man in a world in turmoil, tribulation, and that Jesus is the answer to every need here. I'm sorry. There is no politician who is going to save us. I'm sorry, there's no educator that's going to save us. There's no physicist, there's no scientist, there's no person that is going to save us from the inevitable. We're going to see that when everything is gone, when everything is stripped away, when sin, Satan, and sorrow have all been defeated, Jesus will still be God. And regardless of what you might be facing today, remember that Jesus Christ is your answer. He's your hope. There's no person, possession, profession. He is the only one that can save you and lead you forward. John 14, Jesus said this when he was meeting with his disciples before he died. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, but unto, no, no man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Hear me, loved ones. Every person in this room, every person in this world has to decide, is Jesus, are you going to be a follower? Or are you going to be a foe? And there is a day. There is a finish line. 
And the second thing, third thing I want you to remember is we are his hands extended as individuals and as a church corporately. We're his followers to carry this message out. Not one of death and destruction, although that can be part of it, but that we never let people, we never remove ourselves from reminding people of the love of God that comes, that came to save them and to release them and to give them freedom from their sins. Everyone has a shelf life. Philippians 2 reminds us that, guess what? One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess I didn't believe it, but you are God. And Jesus still calls us loved ones to be able to share that message with the people around us. That there's a God that loves them. But we don't say it a lot, but there is a God that's coming in his glory. And for some, it's going to be glorious. For others, not so much. The story of John, when he was old, he could no longer walk. This is after he had come back from the island of Patmos. They, were, they gave him a reprieve, but they carried him. Every Sunday, they would carry him on a cot from his house to his place of worship because he couldn't walk, he couldn't get around. Time and time again, as the last living apostle, people would ask him, would you come and speak? Or as he was walking through town, going to the, to the house of worship, people would recognize him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he, as he would walk by, or if he ever did speak, he would just simply say these words, little children love one another, nothing more. If you could see the queen, Little children love one another. As he's on this cot, as he would ever stand up to speak, that's all he said. Little children love one another. It's one of the scriptures that he wrote in 1 John. One day someone asked him, why, why, why do you say nothing else? Why is that the only thing that you say? And John's reply was because... This is our Lord's sole commandment, and if we fulfill this, nothing more is needed. So remember, friends, we're his hands extended. We're called to love one another in this room. We're called to love those out there and to show them the love of Jesus. Would you stand with me? for a moment. I want to close in prayer. And I want you to consider your next step. Do you need to, maybe you've never made a commitment to Jesus. Truth is, if we're not a follower, we're, Scripture says we're kind of an enemy. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but ultimately we're his enemy. And maybe want to make that decision today to say I'm going to follow Jesus you can do that in just the standing of your seat there say Jesus I choose to follow you today would you forgive me of my sins
maybe some of us need to become a little more loving to the people around us. We can judge and speak judgment, but we don't necessarily love. Remember, little children, love one another. Maybe some of us need to dive just a little deeper into the Word so that we can experience His blessing and the truth of His Word. Start this week reading this Scripture. Start Revelation with us. So, Father, we come today. We don't have all the answers. You do. We don't have all the love that we can give. You can bring it. We don't know the future or where we're going per se, but you do. And Lord, help us to press into you and to trust you. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would begin to establish deep moorings of faith, Lord, that lead us to look to you and focus on you. I thank you, Lord, for this church, and I pray that, Lord, in this season ahead, you begin to do some significant things as you are revealed and unveiled to us that we give you thanks today in the name of Christ Jesus we pray everybody said amen